Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to the Grief to Growth podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he's here to help you grow where you've been planted. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. His sincere hope is that this episode helps you today. And now, a brief word from our sponsor. When I decided I was going to do a podcast, I knew there were more moving parts than most people expect. How do you record a podcast? Where do you host it? How much will it cost? Do I need special software? How do I distribute it? All these questions were in my mind. I was all set to go with another podcast hosting company. Then I heard about Anchor. I believe that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place. You can use it right from your phone or from your computer. Anchor is not only free, you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Anchor's creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M as in FM radio. And now, back to our episode. Today's episode is with my good friend Penny Whitbrot. Penny and I met several years ago on Facebook. It seems like we've known each other forever. We've had several long conversations because Penny's led a very, very interesting life. And when I met Penny, she was going through a medical condition that would cause her to stop breathing. As a result of that, Penny has actually crossed over to the other side more than once, and her experiences and the lessons from them are amazing. She's going to share those with us. Also, when people have near-death experiences, they're often what are called after-effects. They are they come back a changed person, and Penny talks about that as well in the episode. So it's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. This is Brian Smith with Grief to Growth, and today I've got my friend Penny Whitbrook. And Penny and I have known each other for a few years now. Uh, we met, I don't even know, we met on Facebook. Uh-huh. Um, so I want to introduce Penny real quick, and then we're just going to have a conversation. Um, Penny is the mother of three and has four beautiful grandchildren. She's a retired nurse. She lives in Kentucky with her husband, Don, and her three eccentric cats. In 2002, she began a professional career after earning her associate degree in nursing from Eastern Kentucky University. She went on to enter the fields of cardiothoracic and critical care nursing. 
In 2011, her practice expanded, allowing her to care for terminally ill and actively dying patients. This gave her the opportunity to provide support through often neglected end-of-life transitions. As each soul passed into the spirit world, she found herself examining her own beliefs about death and what lay beyond. After her own near-death experience, she began writing and sharing her story with others. So with that, I want to welcome my friend, Penny. Hi, thank you. Penny, it's, uh, it's great to hit, get you here finally. You've been so busy. I know your life yes. has been like crazy. When I met you, your life was crazy. Yeah. So um, start your story wherever you like. If you'd like to start there or if you want to go back. or. Um, I, I would like to, you know, we were talking just a little bit earlier and, and I said um, the last time that I got really sick and was in a coma, um, and I'll go back and explain all that, but mm-hmm. um, you've, re- you've just really changed my life. Um, I, I had that last coma and I can remember crossing over and I, I told God, I said, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I, you know, either take me or heal me because I can't do this anymore. And, uh, and he, he's shown this light on my life that showed what I was doing that, that was this big stumbling block for me. And, and he's like, you're, you're isolating again, you know, and you, people bring these opportunities to you. And, and people come into your path that you could impact and you keep saying, no, say yes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, say yes. I mean, could it be that simple? And I've got to tell you, I said, yes. Um, after that last anaphylactic ta- attack in December and uh, you were the first person to call me with an opportunity. And so you had asked me several times, you're like, you should come to IAMS in Cincinnati and speak and, and I'd say, yeah, I should do that. And we'd talk about it. And then I'd back out. I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And um, finally, that I had that last illness and that run with uh, anaphylaxis. And, and I, as soon as you said it, I knew what I had to do. And it was like, oh, I mean, it was physical torture, right? I'm like, yeah. yes, Brian, I'll do that. And I'm like, oh, God, I did it. I said, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But well, the thing that's ironic yeah. is you're the one that told me about the Cincinnati Ions group. Yeah. You, you and I had met, you told me about the group and I'm like, I'm going to go. And I started going and mm-hmm. I was like, Penny should speak here. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm glad you did. It, it was just, it's funny because it was that. And I wanted, I'm trying to think of what the next thing was. I think the next thing was the book, the transformative power of near death experiences. So that's mm-hmm. a book by, uh, Dr. Penny Sartori, and it's a collection of stories from people who've had near-death experiences. So I wrote a chapter for that about my experience, and then I helped edit the book. And so that was a that was kind of my first published sort of thing. And I've had some um, things published online since, and done some other interviews. and um, And it was funny because I thought, well, who would watch just little old me, you know, in the, these interviews? But Don and I were online the other day and, and I said, you know, I wonder how many people it's touched so far. And, you know, we're over 60,000. So I thought, oh, wow. I guess it is a message that resonates more than, more than I give it credit for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know when you spoke at the Cincinnati Ions, I mean, you just, you just killed it. You had the whole room just mesmerized um, <laughs> telling your story and you got done. You're like, I don't think I did a very good job, and, but you did, you did a fantastic job. Thank you. So that let's was, talk about that was so cool because, you know, when I called them, I think she said, um, you know, we could expect maybe 12 people. 
And we had some folks rent a bus from Indiana and drove over. Yeah. I was, and people kept coming in. Do you remember there weren't enough chairs? People were like, oh, yeah. we'll sit on the floor. Yeah. And I, I was blown away. I thought, holy cow. And I hadn't prepared anything because I, I actually had. Don was freaking out because I hadn't prepared anything. And so I did it because he said I should. But I learned that I'm better off the cuff. And as soon as I walked away from those notes, I was great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a great experience for me. Yeah, well, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad that you're, you're getting your story out there um, because it's your, your, you and I have talked a lot, you know, behind the scenes and I know a lot about your life and your life has just been, you know, pretty amazing in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the near-death experience, I mean, that those came about, as you, you kind of alluded, you kind of touched on a little bit, this anaphylactic shock thing you had going on where you were just literally dying all the time. All the time, yeah. I... Um, so I guess it's been almost six years ago now, because December will be three years since my last attack. Um, it, it just started out kind of out of nowhere. And I was having some autoimmune type things like fibromyalgia and rosacea in my cheeks and stuff. And But I mean, a lot of women have that. And uh, I was home with my daughter one day and drinking just a smoothie in the living room. And I had a history of anaphylaxis to shellfish but I hadn't had an attack in years and years. I just kind of kept those EpiPens around obligatory, you know, because you're supposed to, but I'd never used one. And um, I'm in the living room and I start having difficulty breathing and swallowing and I'm a nurse. And I was like, holy cow, this is anaphylaxis. So I gave myself my EpiPen. My son drove me to the hospital and it was a small town we were in. And I knew the nurse who was checking me in and I won't say her name, but when she was checking me in, I thought, oh man, I'm in trouble. (laughs) She's got no idea what she's doing. And uh, she's, she said, well, why did you come? You know, you took your EpiPen. What'd you come to the hospital for? And I thought, wow, you don't even know the basic protocol for anaphylaxis. You take your EpiPen, you go to the hospital. So she's like, well, we don't have, we're waiting on a bed for one of the rooms. So I'm just going to set you here in the hallway. We'll get to you soon. (laughs) You know, and that's a person that goes, I mean, I'm a critical care nurse. That person goes right to the trauma bay because you may end up having to intubate. So I'm in the hallway. I've got Strider, which is, you know, and people are just walking around doing their thing. I'm dying. Give myself another shot of my EpiPen. Um, and finally, the PA looks over and is like, she's not looking so hot. They get me in a room. And at this point, we don't have an IV or anything. And I'm crashing fast. Don gets there and they move me into trauma and uh, they can't get an IV because when you have anaphylaxis, everything kind of clamps down. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's just going from bad to worse. And Don's like, if you don't do something, she's going to die. You need to intubate her. And uh, that's, they said, Oh no, we've got plenty of time. And it was immediately after that, that I just quit breathing. And so I stopped breathing And it's funny because I popped out of my body so I could see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of watching and I'm thinking, man, who is that girl? She's, she's pretty sick. I didn't, I was, it was so, I was so depersonalized. I didn't realize that was me. And, um, you know, I, I saw him snap the tongue blade and I'm like, oh yeah, that she's getting intubated. And so they intubated me and then, um, and then everything was just black for a while, but they flew me out to, uh, St. Joseph Main Hospital in Lexington. They had to drill a IV into my leg because we couldn't get an IV anywhere. So I had an IV in my shin bone. Hmm. Um, and I woke up in ICU four or five days later. 
So it was crazy. Yeah. And that happened in a two and a half year time period that happened 18 times. I was on the ventilator every time I was in a coma every time, nothing would stop it. We had misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. We had a doctor that said it was anxiety. I'm like, it's anxiety. Stop intubating me. What are you doing? You know, right. you can't close your own airway off because you're nervous. And I said, I'm not nervous and stopping breathing. I'm nervous because I can't breathe. Right. Exactly. And, uh, but you know, we were, we were at the point that we were talking about putting in a tracheostomy so that I could just come in and they could hook me up to the ventilator and I wouldn't have to be on all the, you know, the coma inducing drugs. Yeah. I remember you and I were talking during this time and you would just disappear for like days at a time. And I would be like, Oh, I died again. I was, I was. (laughs) People would message me. Like if they didn't hear from me for a day or two on Facebook, they're like, has anybody heard from Penny? I haven't heard from Penny. And they were right. I was in the hospital. Yeah. So the first time you just popped out of your body and looked down and saw yourself and yeah, and then it kind of came back in. Yeah, everything kind of went black. And the next thing I remember, um, I kind of materialized. It's just such a hard word to to describe what happened, but I kind of materialized in the back seat of my sister's car, mm-hmm. and she was driving from Wisconsin to Kentucky, and she was at this gas station. She had pulled over, and it was pouring rain. And I knew my, my body felt weird, like not solid or, and I couldn't feel my bottom and my legs against the seat. And that seemed odd. And I just couldn't sort out what was going on. And Mm. so uh, I'm in the backseat of her car and I see her clothes and they don't match. And I'm thinking, what on earth is she wearing? She looks ridiculous. And um, she, she pulls over and I'm thinking, why is she driving? You know, and I sensed something was wrong. You know, why is she driving in this pouring rain? She should be home. Maybe something's happened with one of the kids. And and I saw her pull her phone out and she typed, she got onto Facebook and she typed, um, hang on or hang in there, kiddo, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. Well, it was funny because when I woke up, she was there at the hospital and I said, I saw what you typed on Facebook. And of course, there was no way I could have known that, but um, it really freaked her out. <laughs> So did she verify what she was wearing when you saw her? Did yeah, you talk about that? Yeah. yeah, I'd asked her about it. I said, why were you wearing that outfit? And she said, well, when I got the call, I just grabbed whatever clothes were on the end of the bed and I threw them on and threw some stuff in a bag and I left. And and that's why I was mismatched. And she verified the 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 pouring rain and pulling over and and all of that stuff. So there's no question that I saw that. And But so, you know, it kind of started like that. And then I popped back out of her car and I was just in this dark void. And people always ask me, it's interesting the response you get when you have a near-death experience, because I think as a believer, um, somebody who believed in God beforehand, I just assumed that all of my friends that were religious would be the ones that wanted to hear the story. Right. And the people that I have gotten the hardest time from have been the religious folks. That is so weird. Yeah, you know, I, I find the same thing when people tell their near-death experience stories. It's the people who are the religious ones that say that this can't be true. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says, send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back. 
and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. Yeah, right. And so I think, and I always try to remind people because I do understand what their reservation is. You know, I tell about this, this dark and empty void that I was in and they're like, well, wait a minute, you're a Christian. You should have gone right over to heaven. Hmm. And I think I've figured that out. A near death experience is not a death experience. Right. You know, I think God knows you're only going to be there a short while. He knows you're going to decide to go back because you're not done yet. So I think the near-death experience is tailored to the experiencer with what they need so that they can go back and overcome some things that are hindering them in their life. Hmm. That's not the same experience you're going to give somebody who's coming to stay. Right. Right. You know, they don't need to know all that. So for all of the folks who are Christians who are like, well, you didn't see Jesus and all these other things, you know, I was just there for a little visit. Um, Mm -hmm. And those little visits aren't like a, aren't like moving in. Right. Yeah. So, good point. I like to put that. So, so what I was think the void those, like? The void? It's so funny. I have a real appreciation for it now, but then it was terrible. Hmm. Um, I was in this expanse that was so dark and it seemed limitless to me as far as its space. And there was an oppressive nature to it. And I wonder if some of that being on the ventilator Um, and the agitation that occurs in a patient, even in a coma from being on a ventilator. I wonder if I was kind of feeling that on that side, because as a nurse, it seems to me what people would describe. And so um, I had this just oppressive work of breathing, you know, and it it was like I knew I didn't need to breathe over there, but it still seemed like I had to perform the work. And, um, And I was just stuck there. I couldn't figure out how to get out. And time is really different there. Um, time here is so structured and time there really gets away from you. Um, And so I always tell people if I had to compare this earthly time with the time that I spent in the void, I would say it was probably about 10 years. Hmm. Um, It just was a very, very long time. What, what if you think 10 years back now, what that time frame feels like to you. And so I, I, I began to wonder if I had ever really lived like maybe I just imagined all of that to have something to think about in that place. Hmm. Um, I, I just didn't know what was going on, why I was trapped there, what I could do to get out. I would try to move and I'd drag myself forward a little bit and then I'd get so tired and go into what I call the deep sleep where I had no awareness. And I, that kind of went back and forth for a long time. And then finally I started doing some introspection and saying, you know, is there something that I need to understand or learn before I can leave here or, or, or realize that, you know, maybe I did live that life and there's something I'm, maybe it's me, maybe I'm why I'm stuck here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it just occurred to me that the, the spiritual space that I was in was a picture of the spiritual space that I had made on the earth realm. I had kind of, since my divorce many years ago, I had kind of built this wall around myself Hmm. to protect me and protect the kids. And, you know, a wall's great to protect you, but it also keeps people out and it keeps you in. And so I'd really started to isolate, you know, I mean, I went to work, I took care of my kids. I took care of my house. I went to work, I took care of my kids, I took care of my house. Hmm. And I stopped putting myself out there. 
And so the isolation that I had built on this side followed me over. And as soon as I figured out that this was the eternity that I had created, as soon as that realization happened, there was this rumbling and it exploded open. And so now all these little pieces of the darkness, like almost shards, are flying. They're just spinning around. And the darkness is pushing further and further away. And the spirit comes. Hmm. And I didn't know who she was at first. And she's just larger than life. And orange hair on her head that is so bright, it's on fire. Um, and so there's like these little licks of flame that are her hair. And, and she's just... Um, such an attractive spirit. Like you, I couldn't keep myself from going to her. And so I go to her and she holds me against her chest and I realize it's my grandmother. Wow. And it's funny because my mom and even my relatives that have watched some of my videos online will tell me, holy cow, you're, you look just, you have all the mannerisms and stuff of your grandmother, Levita. And so I'm there with her and I'm weeping. You know, I'm so relieved that someone's there and I'm not alone and the dark is gone. And, and I'm just overcome and I'm crying and, and her energy is just circling around me and mine's still separate, but she's kind of encompassing me. And these shards of the darkness keep trying to get in and they hit her energy and they're flung further away. And, wow. and she's holding me and I'm crying and she says telepathically because they don't speak, but she says, calm yourself, dear one. And the words were like, if any of the people who watch this have ever been given like morphine or fentanyl or whatever, IV for surgery, you know, um, that immediate rush that you get that's like super relaxing and you can feel everything. That's what it was like. It was like a chemical. I felt it acting on her words, her, the intention of those words acted on every cell in my body. And I just immediately relaxed and kind of melted into her and, and just, I mean, her energy was just amazing. I could feel her loving me. And I asked her, I said, am I dead? And she said, oh, no, no. You, she said, it's like you learned in science. Energy can't be just created or destroyed. It just changes forms. Mm -hmm. And so it's true here too. So you don't die. You either are alive on the um, earth side or you're super alive on this side. Mm -hmm. And it's just this transition. And she said, you are kind of in between. And there's a little cord that's holding you to your living side. Hmm. And if you wanted to go back to that, you could. And I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. And, um, you know, she just kind of loved on me for a little while. And, and I was just floating in this light. And I didn't realize she had gone. And all of a sudden, there was this, like, rumbling, thundering, and like this presence shook everything that ever had been or ever would be every every planet in the cosmos just was rumbling with this energy and i could feel it in my bones and i knew something big was coming hmm. and i never saw a person um and i always refer to god as he just because the energy felt very masculine to me mm -hmm. um but I mean, I can't say with certainty that this was a man and I don't think God is a man. I think it's, I don't know. He was this mix of masculine and feminine because he was nurturing, but that power makes you think, you know, yeah. at least me as a traditional person, it makes me think of a man. Huh. So, you know, he came to me and I heard him say this telepathic thing. 
he said, I am. And I had read that in the Bible so many times, you know, he would come to people and they, they wouldn't know who he was. And he would say, I am. And that was it. That's all he had to say. I'm like, man, you're the stuff. Well, you could just come up to somebody and say, I am. And you're like, yeah, you are. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so he came to me like that. And um, this light. Oh, man, I got to tell you, Brian, there's a resonance. And it's the key of D is what it sounded like to me. And um, it, oh, it's hard to talk about. Um, it just had this vibration to it that was alive that just went through me and it was, I could feel it just coursing through every part of me. And, and so I'm there with him and immediately I, I got kind of scared. I'm like, Oh no, I wasn't ready for this. He's going to look at all the stuff that I'm, I've done wrong that I'm so ashamed of. And, and you know, he wasn't judging me. He was like super loving and everything, but I just, I just, it was like being naked in front of a crowd. I just was wanting to kind of hide and and he kind of soothed me in that and I knew we were going to go through my life mm. and um and so here I'm dreading stuff like a kid you know worried about the parents reading their diary or something and all those things that I was so worried about that I was dreading never came up mm. what the heck right yeah <laughs> I think I had probably beat myself up enough about those maybe so and, yeah. yeah and so these other things came up and first he showed me the good and all of the things that I've done that I feel really good about did not come up. And uh, the things that came up were um, there was a scene in the grocery store that I had forgotten about. I mean, probably when my kids were little and there was a woman in line in front of me and she was short just a couple dollars to pay her bill. And um, she was trying to figure out what to put back. And, and I just knew what it was like to be in that position as a young mom. And, and I said, it's okay. It's okay. I've got it. And I gave her the money and it immediately. So I'm seeing this scene like I'm there and immediately it flashes forward. And I see this woman um, working in a food pantry and she's blessing these, these people with food and God's showing me, he's like, I want you to see the ripple effect of every little act of kindness. Wow. And, and I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And, uh, and then we went through some of the negative things. And the one thing that really stuck with me was that um, of all the things I've done in my life that I'm not proud of, the thing that was shown to me is the, probably the hardest thing to never do again. And it was to control my thoughts about other people. Hmm. And God showed me, he said, let me explain something to you. So a thought has a certain measure of energy to it. And <clears throat> a word has even more and an action has more than that. But it all starts with a thought. Hmm. And there's a thing in the Bible that says, um, you know, the mouth is the, or the mouth is like the rudder of a ship. You know, the way you speak is the direction you go and there's life and death in the tongue. Well, it's the same thing with your thoughts. Hmm. And, um, you know, because what you think about is what you talk about is what you end up doing. Yeah. And so you, it, it starts here. You got to control your thoughts and your heart. And, and so he showed me um, these negative thoughts that I had had about people and they were deserved. Let me tell you, these were some jerky people. Yeah. And, right. I mean, yeah. they're just out there. They are, and they're jerks and they deserve to have. Well, you, you've had some very jerky people in your life. So yeah, I have. Yes. And so he showed me though, he said, 
when you spend your energy on this, you know, and you're thinking these negative thoughts, it hurts you because the energy that you put out there impacts you. And I don't know how to turn that notification noise off. Um, That's okay. Is it okay? Yeah. Uh, okay. We got to get out of that then. Um, now I lost. Oh no. Brian. I'm here. Okay. I went off my screen. Um, yeah, so you were talking I, about the negative thoughts and how they yes, have. Yeah. I'd had these negative thoughts about people. And so he showed me that when you have a negative thought about that person, that energy goes out there and it attaches itself to that person. And you contribute it, you contribute to the jerk that that person is because hmm. now you've attached more of that energy to them. Wow. So this is, this is why forgiving is so important. Um, this is something new to me. I did not know this. Yeah. So when you forgive people, it, it is people say, oh, it's not for them. It's for you. It, it is for them because if they don't receive some measure of forgiveness, that energy is still attached to them and it can't come away. The energy has got to go somewhere. Hmm. And so when that, you know, energy isn't created or destroyed, it just changes form. So when you have a thought, so if I think something negative about you, that thought attaches itself to your spirit and it makes you more the person that you are, that I'm thinking you are. Wow. Wow. And when I forgive you, that energy is able to be redirected. And so that little bit of negative that I put on you that made you more the negative person that you are now comes off because I've forgiven you. Wow. And so it's really important to that other person's journey for you to forgive them. And it's really important to you because not only does that negative energy go and attach to them, but it attaches to you and energy attracts energy. So if you're harboring all of these negative feelings about people, even if they're well-deserved, you're just drawing more of it to you because that energy isn't attached to you. And wow. I mean, that's life changing information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's really changed the way I live my life. And so, you know, here I've got that revelation and coming off of it, you know, so we kind of pull away from this life review and I don't remember every detail we're not supposed to, I don't think. Right. Um, but I, you know, here I am with this loving creator who's kind of let all the big stuff go that I was really worried about. And then I suddenly become angry with him. And I realized I'd been angry with God for a long time. And I told him, I said, you know, you say you're this loving God and, and you want the best for your children. And I call bull crap. Um, you know, and you can just be so honest. I love that. Yeah. You know, I call bull crap. Um, you know, I've seen what, what you've allowed my own children to go through. And I said, here their dad abandons them when they're just babies. And, you know, him leaving me was hard enough and, and not deserved. And, and for him to abandon his own children. And I thought, you know, I can take whatever he did to me, but watching those kids, you know, talk to him on the telephone and then go to the mailbox every day to check for a gift that he said he was going to send. That's never coming and watch them walk back heartbroken every day. What kind of God allows that? You know, I said, it would have been easier on all of us. And this is terrible to say, but it would have been easier if he died. Because I could have told the kids this story about what a wonderful man he was and how much he loved them. And they would have at least had that. Yeah. But now they've got this man that's alive that is failing them in every way. And of course, children take that on and attribute it to something being wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And I really had held that against God. And I was bitter. And I wanted to be mad at him. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was kind of balled up about it. And uh, he said, oh, you've completely misunderstood me. And he said, let me show you something. And we flash forward and we're sitting in the bleachers. David, my oldest son, is sitting to my right. Now, when I had the experience, my grandson was too. So David's sitting to my right and Cole's older. He's like five or six, mm-hmm. my grandson is. And we're watching him play soccer. And he's running up and down this field and the sun's on his hair. And you know that magic of just just kids, you know, just mm-hmm. there's just something about it. And he's running up and down the field and I just seeing him in his strong body and his, you know, his hair. And he's just, I mean, just magic. It's just magic. And, and David looks at me and he says, mom, I'm never going to get through this. He says, mom, I'm going to be the dad to him that I deserved. Hmm. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you know, if, if it took his dad leaving for him to make that commitment, I get it. You know, it's been worth it. Yeah. And, and I got to say, he's been that dad. And it's so funny because a couple years later, Cole's playing soccer. <laughs> Who would have known that at two, right? Yeah. Cole's playing soccer. And David looks at me and he says, mom, I'm going to be the dad to him that I deserve. Wow. And I was like, I mean, it just sucks the air out of you. I'm like, oh my gosh, that happened. And it was this confirmation from God. Yeah. You know, you were here. Because there's times you doubt that near-death experience because so many people doubt it. And he's like, no, you were here. And and I'm making manifest the things that I promised you. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow. Well, there's also a lesson in that, that we we judge things, right? We say this is good or this is bad. And and of course, you know, the experiences that you've been through, anybody would call bad. But, right. you know, we, don't, we can't see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to live our lives forward, in which case a lot of times they don't make a lot of sense. But when we can right. look back on them, then we can start to make more sense of it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe the NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing I learned there was we have this really screwed up definition of good and bad. To us, good is when nothing is wrong and bad is when everything is right. And in the spiritual realm, um, good is forward motion, no matter how awful it feels. Um, Hmm. So you're moving forward, you're growing, um, you know, you're affecting the lives of other people, even if you're doing it through grief or, uh, you know, whatever that's considered good up there. He's like, yep, you're doing good work, even though all the circumstances around it suck, you know, you're, you're, you're still good. It's not bad. You're moving forward. Now, the day that you start sitting in that recliner and you stop interacting with the world and you're just in that, um, you know, I'm going to do what makes me comfortable. That's bad, even though nothing bad's happening. 
That's not what we're here for. We weren't here to be sedentary creatures that have no effect on the world around us. There's no point in you being here if that's what you're going to do. And so I just got to say, even in, you know, I know a lot of your, um, your work since losing your daughter has been, how do you move forward from grief? Um, and, and these horrible things that happen. I mean, there's no, there's nothing I can say to you that's like, you know, and you and I have had these talks where I'm like, you know, you tell me you're having a really bad day and, and I don't even try to cheer you up. I'm like, yeah, that really sucked. That was a horrible thing. And I can see why you feel terrible about that because I feel like people are like, Oh God needed another angel. And I'm like, no, we didn't. He doesn't stop saying that. That's like the worst thing you can say to somebody that loses someone. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. We just lost my cousin who I was very close to. And, I know, yeah. Yeah. And, and somebody's like, well, God needed another angel. And I thought, man, I'd throat punch you, but we're in a funeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, God doesn't need any more angels. And no, no, he's got exactly what he needs. And, yeah. and God's actually in it for what you need. Yeah. Um, and I don't have all the answers and, you know, for suffering and things like that. But I was thinking the other day, you know, I learned when I was over there that before we come to this life, um, there's actually a decision-making process that we go through with some consultation um, of spirit guides and things like that about what family we want to come to and what general lessons we'd like to learn while we're here, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we know the whole story before we come. I think we forget it when we get here, but I think we know it before we come. And so I, I try to remind people of that because before you came, you knew what traumas you were going to face and you were like, that's the life I want to live. I want to have those lessons because those are going to contribute to the growth of my spirit and the way it needs to grow. And so this higher you makes decisions here that are terrible and here they're awful because this life, we perceive it as being really a long time. But I got to tell you, when I pulled out of my body, this this seemed like it had been over like that. Mm. Um, and so I see these, um, I see different things. Like I see people say, well, what about kids with cancer that are suffering? Or what about kids that are born horribly deformed? And and I, I just tell them, I'm like, those are the most sacrificial spirits. Mm-hmm. those are the ones on the other side that said, I'll come void of even the ability to communicate just so I can show people a love that transcends speech, mm-hmm. you know, and, I'll yeah, and I've talked to mothers of those children and mm-hmm. they say what a blessing they are. Yeah. How they, yeah. How they totally transform their lives. And it might be a child that, that never spoke. Right. You know, I've got a brother um, who's got an intellectual disability Yes, and your brother dancing. <laughs> yes, and John is the happiest person you'll ever meet. And he, he is, is he is a blessing to there is nobody that has ever met my brother that doesn't like him. If John had a Facebook page, he'd have thousands of followers. Yeah. Yeah. Because the man is infectious. He's just yeah. so happy and fun. Just say his name and you have to smile. You do, you know, and, and and he's just he's super innocent and he doesn't, you know, doesn't know better and a lot of respect. I'll have to tell you a funny John story. John, when we were kids, uh, he worked at Kroger's sacking groceries. And I used to have to go pick him up. He's 15 months older than I am. And I'd go pick him up from work. And so one day I'm in the line at Kroger and there's a lady in front of me. And John's sacking her groceries. And and he's like 17 at the time. And and um, he says, he says uh, in his John voice, he says, you sure are pretty. 
you know, so he comes across kind of creepy anyway. He doesn't mean to, but yeah, just, yeah. he's got that monotone voice, so it's kind of off. And she's like, oh, well, thank you. And he says, yeah, you got that pretty brown hair or blonde hair. And she's like, oh, thank you, you know. And and, she, and he says, and them big boobies. <laughs> <laughs> like what she does yeah yeah <laughs> to him it was the most obvious thing and why wouldn't you mention it it's the innocence of a child yeah <laughs> and but I gotta say you know I see people and and you know I talked to somebody on Facebook the other day and she reached out and she said you know I'm I'm pregnant and it looks like the baby's gonna have downs and we're trying to decide if we want to keep it or not and I'm like let me tell you something those downs kids will blow you away yeah. uh you know, they're smart and they're funny. And, and, you know, if we start eliminating kids just because they're going to have some kind of difference, there's not going to be many of us left. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. But anyway, so I, I just had to share that because John is such a joy in my life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm there with God and we're talking about the kids and, and I, it's funny, I needed more healing there than anywhere in my life, I think. And, uh, and I, I was trying to just, so, you know, I'm in this light and this kind of healing process begins where the light comes through my feet and it just starts creeping up through my body and it's, it's healing every little cell that it comes in contact with spiritually. Mm -hmm. Um, and it goes, you know, it goes through my stomach and it goes through my chest and it's so powerful. Um, I can, I can just feel this energy coming up through me. And it gets to my tongue and these beautiful songs come out, you know, that I, that I can't stop. Um, and, it, and it comes out. Have you seen the, the movie? Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Oh, where yeah. Jimmy Stewart tells, yeah, he's, he's in love with the gal there. And, and he says, you want me to lasso the moon for you, Mary? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll lasso the moon and you can gobble it up and the moonbeams will shine out your eyelashes, the tips of your fingers and your eyelashes. Well, that's what the energy did. God's energy shot out my eyelashes and it was so bright and it was like looking at the sun without having any pain or your eyes dilate even or mm. and no heat or anything. And so it, I tried to close my eyes cause I didn't want any of the energy to get out. And so I'm closing my eyes and it shoots out my eyelashes and it, it goes out into the expanse and turns around and comes back and hits me. Mm. Um, and it starts going through all, I can feel it going through the little curves in my brain and, um, and, and, and then I feel like I get to this more core part of myself and God's there and it blew me away. I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. Hmm. Do you mean to tell me you've been in there all the time? You're not this external thing. And he's like, well, I'm kind of both. Hmm. Um, and I'm like, so all of us, even the people that don't believe, God is in there. And he's like, you can't take me out hmm. any more than you could take out your own father's DNA. I made you, I'm in there, you know, and, and you can choose to not acknowledge me. You can choose to walk around saying your dad's not your dad, but we can prove he is. Yeah. I'm telling you I'm in there and, and I'm just waiting to love you. And, you know, even through all of this crap you're going to go through and man, Brian, I went through some hell there for a while. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I've had a lot of trauma in my life and, 
And it just, he kind of melted all of that away. And, and I started realizing I was going to have to make this decision about going back. And there was a point, um, actually, when I was still in the void, that I, I, I was able to progress and move and see myself in my hospital room. And so I see myself lying there in a coma, and I saw my daughter there. I knew what she had worn that day um, and was able to describe that back to her. I knew what part of the room she'd stood in. Wow. And I saw myself in that room, and I was trying to figure out, I thought, well, maybe this is how I get back in my body. I'll go through this membrane thing, and then maybe if I can push my spirit down really hard, I can get it over my body, and it'll like absorb me back in like a sponge. Mm-hmm. That didn't work. Um, <laughs> I just got sucked back into the void. But um, so I get to this point where I'm in the light with God and, and I have to come back. And it seemed like a decision that I probably had made before I was born, that I'd known this was going to happen and that I was going to choose to go back because I, because I hadn't lived the life I was supposed to live. I hadn't done the things. You weren't done yet. Yeah. Not even close. You know, yeah. in fact, I had avoided doing the things I was supposed to do. And, um, and I was so, I can't tell you how heartbroken I was to leave. And Don says to me, you know, my husband's like, you know, well, why would you not want to come back to me? And I'm like, I, I can't make you understand that. Yeah. You know, until you've been there, you just can't understand it. I knew you'd be okay eventually. And, um, and so I made that decision to come back and, and I was crying. And, and I told God, I said, at least let me remember it. Because if I can't remember this, I don't think I'll have any hope. Mm-hmm. And I woke up. I was off the ventilator. My sister was standing there. And the first thing I said was, I was with God. Mm-hmm. And the nurse came in and she called the doctor. And I'm in St. Joseph Catholic Hospital. And the first person they send in to see me is a psychiatrist. Because you said you saw God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't see God though. <laughs> you can't see God, and so they wrote that I was having delusions, and oh wow, and, you know, and that stuff follows you. <laughs> You're yeah. not really and I thought that's just—I just couldn't get over the irony of that—that that, you know, yeah. now I'm a little delusional. In a I was just reading an article yesterday that was written. Someone was talking about the Catholic Church has been talking about people communicating you know, with people in the afterlife and how it's right. a terrible thing. And you can only, you can pray for them and you can pray to them and, but you can't communicate with them. And I, I actually stopped reading the article at that point. Isn't that what we do when we pray? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was like, I can't, I can't read anymore. But I mean, you communicate is, with God. That's a give and take sort of thing when you're praying or meditating or. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't communicate with people in the afterlife, I guess is, is the prohibition. But, yeah, well, you know how that's gone for me, you know, that people have come to me and, and I've wanted no part of it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not reaching out to that person and telling them what this person has gone on, has told me to tell them. Absolutely not. You know? Yeah. Because you don't know how you're going to be received. Well, no, you don't. You don't know how you're going to be received. So your, your, back, your faith background, you're obviously very devout. Um, you, weren't, you weren't Catholic though, right? I was Catholic growing up. Okay. Um, and then when I guess I was about 21, I became a Christian and started attending the Methodist church. And that's where we're at now. Um, we're in a Christian church, but um, yeah, I, I would say I was pretty devout before my near death experience. Re- 
but I had a lot of religion steeped in me, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. Um, now I would say that I'm more spiritual, not in the new age sense. Right. I know a lot of people do experience that though. Um, to me, I just feel more connected to my creator. Um, and I, you know, because now I know it exists. So that's, that's made a big difference. And, and I, in his creation, I can sense him in his creation. So like if I'm outside, birds will come closer to me than they come to other people, like a lot closer. Yeah. And I can feel the trees loving me. I mean, I know that's weird, but you know, you know, our little tree out front that got hit by lightning that I told Don to cut down, cut down, cut down. And then I had the near death experience and I felt that tree loving me. And her name is now Lola. Oh, wow. And apparently she was a showgirl in a previous, <laughs> if you know, Barry Manilow. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't get that reference. Yeah. I figured a lot of folks that are any younger than me might not. And, uh, and so she had been split off by lightning and she looked terrible and Don had cut part of it down, but not all of it. And it just was this janky looking tree. And, and, uh, she just reached out to me and she's like, I'm not done yet. And so we trimmed her back and dang, if that tree didn't come back. And so every time I go outside, I'm like, Lola, man, you're looking good. Well, you know, it's funny. We don't, we don't assign consciousness to things other than human beings and maybe animals. And I was reading PMH Atwater's book yesterday and she was saying that after her experience, when she came back, she started seeing consciousness and everything. So she had this old coat that I guess she kept mending and mending and mending until it finally just fell apart. Then she had a funeral ceremony for it and buried it. And her kids are like, what is wrong with you? But the after effects of near-death experiences are, can be profound. And I know you've had some amazing after effects. Uh, as you said, you, you, have pe you see dead people, right? You have people that, are, that talk to you. Yeah. Uh, and you've, you know, um, you were telling the story. I, I don't remember the exact, but the story when you were in the church and you were, you were praying and. Yeah, that was actually before my near death experience. That was before. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a while ago, but yeah, it was the only other out of body experience I'd ever had. And I was in this church in Lexington and normally I would take my kids on a Wednesday night, but I, I didn't for some reason that week. I'd only been to the church twice. It's a huge church. Nobody knew me. And uh, they were doing baptisms that night. And they had a gal there who got up on the stage. And I had had some pretty bad church experiences. And just I, church in Kentucky is different than church anywhere else I've ever lived. Been there. Um, <laughs> you know, there's some really mean, judgy people at church. Mm -hmm. And being a single mom for so many years, I had gotten the bad end of that. And, um, so I'm in this church and, and it's a more progressive church, I guess you'd say. And um, there, this lady's up on stage and they've got like these swimming pools set up and they're baptizing people. And so this gal gets up and she tells this story about how she'd been abused sexually as a child and had been on drugs. And she was actually getting ready to move to Cincinnati to get involved in the pornographic film industry. Mm -hmm. And she reached out to a friend of hers because she needed help moving. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you'll come to my recovery group or this recovery group at church, I'll help you move. And she wouldn't do it and wouldn't do it. And finally she was not going to be able to move without his help. So she went and she felt so loved in that group and so not judged that it changed her life. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around because I knew that she worked in children's ministry. And I thought, Oh yeah, these people are going to, now they know her story and they're going to be like, can you believe she works in children's ministry? We need to say something about that. You know? And I didn't, I looked around and everyone was crying 
And the feeling of love for this woman was so palpable. And I thought, this is the kind of thing I could be involved in if this, if I could be in church like this. Mm-hmm. And so I, everybody sits down, we go to pray to leave. And I like leave my, or no, I'm standing there. I had bought a lottery ticket before I went to church. I've never bought a lottery ticket before. I've never bought one since, but I bought one that night. And so I'm, I'm standing there and I'm praying and I hear this voice and it's audible. And it says, if you win the lottery, are you going to just ask for a thousand dollars? And I opened my eyes to see who'd said it. I looked around, everybody's praying. And it's, it's kind of like that story from the Bible where the, um, where Abraham's got, um, Oh, I can't think of it. I, is it Isaac? I can't remember. It's not Isaac, but anyway, there's this guy in the church and he's taking care of this child that's been left to his care. And, Mm -hmm. and God keeps speaking to the child. And the child wakes up and, and he thinks it's Samuel or whoever. And he goes Sam, to the yeah. old guy. And yeah, he goes to the guy and the guy's like, you know, go lay back down. I didn't call you. Yeah, yeah. And finally he realizes, he's like, oh, it's the God. It's God. Go yeah. back and call him. You're listening. So this happened a couple times. He said it. And I finally realized who I was dealing with. Mm. And uh, it, it pissed me off. I said, uh, he said, if you win the lottery, are you just going to go and ask for $1,000 of it? And I said, no, that's stupid. Why would I do that? And he said, well, that's what you've done with me. And I was like, and I had, you know, um, there was so much more of God that I could have had, but I didn't want anymore. Hmm. And he said, um, I said, you know, I'm sick to death of you. I said, I've worked for you. I've taught Sunday school. I've worked with the youth. I've, I mean, I just have worked and worked and worked and worked. And, um, and it always, always something bad happens. And, and I tell you, I've got just about as much of you as I want in my life. And I don't want any more. And he said to me, and it was funny because, you know, you have this flash forward near death experience where the interaction is so much the same. So now I have no doubt that that was God I was talking to. And he says to me, Oh, dear one, you've completely misunderstood me. And he said, what if I told you that all I ever, ever wanted from you from this point forward was just to let me love you? Would you be willing to do that? And I, it took the wind out of me and I sat down in my chair and um, I said, yeah, I'd be willing to do that. And I was just taken from my body and I'm in this field and the grass is green and it was very much like a near-death experience. Um, it was this green that there's not a green like here on earth. Mm-hmm. And it had this resonance and the grass had its own song and there were flowers and there was water and it was just transcendent. And, um, and Jesus was there and he had this robe on and he took me into his arms and I had been single for so long and I forgot how much that that physical affection is healing, mm-hmm. you know, and he took me in his arms and I, it just felt so good to be held. And we just kind of were above the ground, just dancing through this field and just healing me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and washing away so much of the hurt that I had about God. And, um, and 
then all of a sudden I'm back and I'm in my body and I'm sitting in this chair and I'm flanked by two men on either side of me and the church is empty. So I don't know how long I had been gone and I'm, I open up my eyes and I kind of do that, you know, side to side look like, Oh crap. Who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the one guy is crying and his shirt is wet from crying. His eyes are closed. And the guy on the other side is crying and my shirt's wet from crying. And I didn't even realize I'd been crying. And the guy to my left opens his eyes and he says, I saw you dancing with him. Wow. And I thought, holy crap, I got to get out of here. I don't know what's going on. So I leave. I get up. I don't talk to either one of them. I just get up and leave. I get in my car and I'm in total panic mode. I'm like, okay, uh, it's like 930. <laughs> I need to go to Meyer and get milk. <laughs> this is my mission, right? Yeah. And so I walk into Meyer and I, I come in the front door and these two people are standing off to the left and they squint at me. And I'm like, oh, freaks, what is going on tonight? And I walk past him and I walk past a couple more people and they just squint too, like they're looking at the sun or something bright. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm still tingling. I still don't feel like I'm all the way back in my body. I'm just trying to get to the milk. I get the milk, I get to the cash register. The lady looks at me, Brian, I swear to God, as I'm sitting here, her pupils constrict. Mm. And she says to me, oh my God, you're glowing. Mm. And I took it as I looked super happy or something. <laughs> and she said, no, I mean, you're shiny. And I got my milk. I got in my car and I left. <laughs> yeah, and I tell that story to people and they're like, yeah, right. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, you can believe it or not, but it happened. And You know, it's funny. You're telling the story. I was at dinner with some people the other night and the husband had taken a picture of his wife. She's sitting out, she's in the sun, but she's glowing. I don't like, and I'm like, I, I know a little bit about photography. It wasn't just like the picture is overexposed because everything around her was not overexposed, but you could see this light coming off of her. So yeah, these things happen. Isn't that cool? I love that. You could just see this, you know, her energy. Yeah. You know, and people, I always tell people, cause you get a lot of scientific folks that are like, Oh, that's hogwash. And, um, you know, we know that we can expose you to different things. Like you have these um, photo cell, photo parts of the cell in your body. Mm -hmm. And um, we can expose you to certain amounts of light and the cell can only hold so much light. Um, just as just the character of what it is, it can only hold so much of that energy. And what happens when it gets overdosed with that light is it starts putting off light. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense to me that if you were exposed to something incredibly bright, that it could then bounce off your cells and people could see it. Well, they're actually showing now that our cells do communicate by light, which nobody had any idea of. And this has just been discovered very recently. So there's, Isn't that there's amazing? All, kinds of, all kinds of discoveries that are coming around to say, you know, people, we, we say people are crazy. We find out, you know, not necessarily. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really interesting, um, that a lot of the things I've read lately, even on consciousness and things like that, are giving a lot of validity to the near-death experience. Um, I had somebody say to me once, well, it's the, it's the, uh, there's a word I'm looking for. It's, it's a production of the dying mind, you of know, course, it's, yeah. it's all these chemicals and everything. And I said, well, okay, that, you know, or, you know, it's lack of oxygen or whatever. And I'm like, well, that, might make sense except for that I was on a ventilator 
my oxygenation was perfectly controlled. Right. And, and, and that near-death experience was going on while I was in the coma because I could describe things about the hospital room. And lack of oxygen doesn't lead to a lucid experience. I mean, right. not, you, you'd have a hallucination that's disjointed. And, and right. why would you remember if you did have one, if your brain shut down? Well, and, you know, people also give you, well, you know, so the medications that I was on to induce coma um, sometimes were propofol. That's the drug that killed Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. We call it mother's milk in the nursing industry because you give it within seconds the person's asleep and you need ventilation there to be able to help control right. that. But um, so it was either propofol or fentanyl and Dilaudid mm -hmm. um, with some Versed. And so nothing about that drug combination says lucid thoughts. Right. Exactly. And, and I, I give a, a near death experience. that's very chronological, very lucid. It right. could not have come from a mind that was drugged enough to be in a comatose state. Exactly. And your experience um, is also veridical. I mean, you've yes. got, you, you, you saw your daughter and you described that she was in the room and where she was in the room. You saw your sister and you knew mm -hmm. she was driving. You knew about the rain, you knew what she was wearing. So um, not that I need that for near-death experiences. And I was talking to someone a little while ago that had a near-death experience, and she had a vertical experience. She said, I don't need the validation, but the researchers are really interested in that. Because we, if something is just subjective, then for us, well, it's not real. If it just happens in Penny's head, then it's not real. Yeah. But if I can see it too, then it's real. So, right. But there have been so many of these near-death experiences, with a percentage of them being vertical, enough mm -hmm. for me to say, I believe the other ones as well. And, right. and if you look at the after effects, and I think that's the really big thing about near-death experiences, if you have an hallucination or a drug overdose, you don't come out of it a changed person. Right. It doesn't change the rest of your life for the better. Right. Well, and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by ex near-death experience that atheists have. Mm -hmm. um, Howard Storm's a friend of mine, and, and you know, he, he describes himself as an angry atheist. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, he had his experience. It's funny, I caught his Oprah Winfrey interview from like way back um, when Oprah had the big hair and stuff. And, and I'm like, wow, I forgot that Howard had had his experience that long ago. But, you know, he and I were talking and, and you know, his marriage couldn't survive it because, you know, they were not believers. And, and he was so radically changed. And it's interesting, you mentioned PM uh, HF water. That's right, right? Yeah, PMH. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, um, she's done so much research. I mean, she is the researcher. Oh, yeah. And uh, after my near-death experience, Don and I went through a very hard time um, because I was questioning everything I knew about religion, not God, but religion. Right. Um, you know, and some of the ways that religion limits people, you know, a lot of religions say that women can't preach or, you know, can't be leaders or... Um, you know, and I'm like, if you're called, you're called. It doesn't, I don't recall God doing a genital check at the door. You know, right. I mean, right. you either are called to do that or you're not. And he's not a respecter of persons. So I don't know where people get that idea. But um, I, I was really questioning a lot of the, the religious dogma. And Don's parents um, both grasped graduated from Asbury Seminary and were both ministers. Mm. And so, I mean, from before he was conceived, he, you know, he was yeah. steeped in it. I know. And, and he's a great guy, but, um, well, not a great guy, but he's a great guy. Yeah. It was really hard for him because I was rejecting some of the teachings 
you know, that I just feel like, uh, I'm like, I think if you read the Bible and you only went by the red letters, um, Jesus has got a pretty strong message that I can get behind. Yeah. Um, but you know, you got all that weird old Testament stuff. That's crazy. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, or even new Testament women shouldn't wear braids. Women shouldn't wear jewelry. And, and people are like, Oh, well, we don't believe in that. You know, that's, that's, we don't believe in that, but we believe in this. And I'm like, so we're going to piecemeal this thing. And, uh, but so I was questioning all that and it was really difficult for Don. I was trying to decide, you know, I would go to church and I would hear somebody say something like, well, this fella died, you know, this guy died and I did his funeral and, um, you know, he wasn't saved. And so now he's in hell and I've got to lie at his funeral. And I was like, how could you say that? You know? And I thought the fact is, um, you have no idea what that person's spiritual condition was at the time of their death. Right. And we know people who are atheists who've died um, and, you know, had a negative experience and turned it around or had a positive experience and came back and, you know, so yeah. to me, that really made me question a lot of these ideas that I'd grown up, especially as a Catholic. And, um, and I'm not banging the Catholic faith, faith at all. You know, they, they got some great things, mm-hmm. but PMH Atwater had done a study and it showed that 70% of people who have a near death experience end up divorced. Yeah. And I remember reading that and crying and thinking here I've met the creator of the universe and it's such a big experience that it destroys the second most intimate um, relationship you have in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I was heartbroken. I have to tell you, I was heartbroken. Yeah. And I sat down with Don one day and he said, Penny, I'm just scared you're going to shave your head and become a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, would it make you love me less? I said, are you telling me you couldn't love me? And he's like, I just don't know how we move forward from here. And I looked at him and I said, PMH Atwater did a study. And it said that 70% of people who have a near-death experience end up divorced. Is that going to be us? And he really had to take all of his ideas and decide what he was going to do. Because I was just telling him, you know what? It's fine. You can walk away. Mm -hmm. I understand it happens to 70% of the people, but man, I'd love to be in the 30% with you, you know? And, and he started listening to me, you know, he said, Penny, I've never known you to be dishonest. And if you say this happened or this was told to you, I got to believe you. And, And maybe, you know, if I interpret the things I understand in the light of what you've experienced, it can still make sense. Exactly. And it does. You know, so it's we're the thirty percent. Hooray! Oh, you know, yeah. you guys together are, ten years. You guys are great together. You guys are fantastic yeah. together. So, uh, and you're just you're an amazing person. He's an amazing person. So, yes. yeah, it worked out. It did. Well, Penny, I uh, it's been great catching up with you. It's great to to get you on and tell your story. I just it's going to help so many people. Um, you just like I said, you're an amazing person. Um, you're in you're in the book, the one book. Are you are you working on your own book? So I've got my own book um, that I work on intermittently and I say, I'm going to write it. And then I say, I'm not going to write it. Um, it you know, I'd, I'd had some struggles with the near death community. Um, I think there's kind of a push in the community to really silence anybody who wants to use the magical three letters, G O D. Hmm. Um, I I'm seeing it more and more where if you 
if you say anything that makes your experience any in any way sound like it has anything to do with any Christian tenants, people want to push that away. Um, and I'm kind of seeing this new age sort of idea take over. Yeah. And the thing is, the experience is the experience. Um, it's just the language, right? I mean, right. God, creator, source, right? Presence, you know, he doesn't care. Well, let me tell you, he doesn't care what you call him. But I, there's, I, I think, you know, and being a, you know, a former fundamentalist, and you know, there's just, there's just a lot of times Christians they anthropomorphize God and they limit God, and God's a person and God's judgmental. Yeah. So when you use that term, I think maybe some of these people feel like you're kind of putting this, right. this ineffable thing into some sort of a, a container. But, um, you know, I, I think you're the language that you, I mean, the language you use is the language that you use. And if right. you just change that one word, your experience would be the same as everybody else's. You, you saw this presence or you felt this presence. You were an unconditional love. You weren't judged. You were welcomed home. It's, it's the creative force that's inside you that informs you. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. Right. I think people forget that, um, you know, the beauty of being human is, you interpret things through your experiences Um, and the way it's really hard to make sense of a near death experience. I'm able to talk about it really coherently now, but when it took years, it took me three years to finally sort it out and be able to express it. And and let me tell you, the description just is horrible. It's not even anywhere close to what happened to me, but um, because of my background and because of my belief system, I do interpret it through those beliefs and somebody who isn't a believer may not interpret it that way. And that's okay. And I just, so I had kind of pulled back from writing the book because I felt like there was such a pushback against any sort of NDE that had a Christian I would Christian encourage background. you to do it maybe for that reason, because there are a lot of Christians that push back on the whole NDE experience because maybe the whole, maybe they feel like the whole voice of the NDE experience is new age. Yeah. And it's oh, that's denying, true. That's a good den- point. Denying the creator. So I think we need more people like yourself. Like I have friends that are Christian mediums and mm-hmm. they feel, they feel kind of ostracized, you know, by, I think sometimes by the mediumship community, but they're like, I'm a, I'm still a Christian and I'm a medium. Right. I, you know, it's just how we, how we look at it, you know? Yeah. Um, and God well, doesn't have any religion. God's not a Christian. He's not a Buddhist. He's right. not a Muslim. Right. And I don't think he cares how we come at it. Right. Well, and if you've, you know, the whole medium thing that's really hard if you're a Christian because when yeah. when spirits start coming to you, we've been taught our whole lives that's not okay. And and I just started thinking, I'm like, why? You know, I mean, right. Jesus talked about um, the wisdom of Elijah and and spirits came to him and spoke to him and challenged him. And, and you know, I'm not saying I'm Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but people... Supposed to do this. Jesus did. Jesus said, you'll do greater things than I did. Right, right. I mean, spirits came to all sorts of people yeah. and talked to them. And so, you know, I think, boy, we've got this little box we like to keep God in. And and I'm like, he's only limited by you. <laughs> you know, we're the ones putting the, the restraints on. And, and, you know, when I've had spirits come to me and I've reached out to people... Um, you know, I'm always super sensitive about that. I'm like, hey, I'm getting something. If you're uncomfortable, you tell me and, and this will stop right now. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, people are like, no, what is what are they saying? Yeah. And, and I'm incredibly accurate. So it's got to be coming from the source. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. You know? Well, I, um, 
depending on how much you want to share, you could write a trilogy. I mean, your, your life is, is just amazing and you, and you tell your story so well. So I want to encourage you to keep doing it. Mm, thank you. Thank you for that. I will. I'll, I think I'll definitely get back to it. I've really been encouraged. I know you've got your YouTube it. channel. You're doing the cooking thing and that's great. Yeah. You're going to be a star, but I'm uh, going to be a star. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think your voice is needed in their death community. I think it would be a really good voice to have. That's really encouraging. And I do think that, you know, these things get put in your path to redirect, you know, I'm going to plop Brian on your path today and he's going to remind you of what I wanted you to do. So I do appreciate that. Cool. Penny. Uh, great. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Good having you on. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. All right. See you later. See ya. This has been another episode of grief to growth. And this is your host, Brian Smith. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I am a life coach and grief partner. You can reach me at www.grieftogrowth.com. That's www.grief2growth.com. And if you'd like, you can book a free half-hour consultation. The other thing I'd like to ask for is your support for the podcast. If you could go to iTunes and leave a review, that would be wonderful. And if you'd like to support me financially, you can support me for as little as 99 cents per month. And you can find the link to do that in every episode. Hope you have a great day. Hey there, if you like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.